and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We all want acceptance, and we'll go to great lengths to earn it. So how do we experience God's acceptance? The twist is that while it's impossible to earn, it's not impossible to receive. Lead teacher Randy Pope begins a new series, Romans 8, Acceptance, with the first part of this message entitled, I Can Now Experience Divine Acceptance which covers Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Well, we, uh, we start a new series today. The series is uh, on Romans chapter 8. Let me give you the title of the series. Romans chapter 8. Is that not creative? You know what's interesting? Here's the interesting thing. I bet there's not another book of the Bible, there's not a chapter in any book of the Bible that if you named the series after the chapter and the book only, there's not any other book that you would get the response that you get from Romans 8. The believing community who knows about Romans 8, many that are you that are seeking, you wouldn't be aware. But let me tell you, when you hear Romans 8, there's a sense of, oh boy, this is the best of the best. In fact, one person has said of Romans as a book, from it, you can learn the content of the Christian faith like nowhere else in the Bible. When I was a uh, a young believer, probably the age of many of our our counselors here, I I was wanting to grow up strong. I wanted to figure out how do you become a a person of of deep faith and maturity. And so I was asking questions to those who were way down the road. Uh, I remember hearing one person who shared with me, in fact, only two answers do I remember. One was when somebody said, you better memorize scripture, just memorize and meditate on the word of God. Best thing you can ever do. The other thing was this, master the book of Romans. Master the book of Romans. So 41 years ago when we began this church, we said then every year, let's make it our intention that we'll start with Romans 1, go through, teach a bit of it. Wherever we stop, we'll pick up the next year. We'll pick up there. And when we finish Romans chapter 8, we'll go back and we'll do it again and again. Let's just keep teaching the book of Romans. In my opinion, a church that masters Romans 1 through 8 is a church that is going to be so mature. It's not all what we know. We understand that. But you get no further than what you do know and understand of God's Word. Today there is in the church a prevailing mindset of simple easy, non-confusing. It's really become an age of pop theology. Uh, There seems to be uh, an interest uh, of people, of Christians today, saying, I want to feel good about my faith, as opposed to saying, I want to be mature in my faith. As a result, instead of a of a rich biblical theology being taught in churches, that's it's kind of the light, you know, ap- application-oriented, simple. Nothing wrong with application and simple. We do it here all the time. But folks, let me tell you, it has got to go further than that if you want to go further than that. 
It is so critically important that you get a good, rich biblical theology, and there is no better place to start than in the book of Romans, and particularly chapter 8. Many of you know the name John Piper, great uh, author and, and uh, retired pastor now. He said of Romans 8, it is the greatest chapter in the Bible. His opinion, I think it might be mine as well. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to address over the next six or so weeks in this series, and then we'll finish actually this series next year. At least we'll go further in this particular series of Romans chapter 8 as we pick up next year. Here are the four, what I am going to call greatest gifts, perhaps the greatest gifts of the Christian faith. The first two we look at this year, acceptance, verses 1 through 17, which basically is telling us, I can now experience divine acceptance. If that is not one of the greatest gifts a person can ever experience, is being able to say with confidence, I know that I'm accepted by my God and what that means. Number two, suffering. So we'll pick up after three weeks and we'll go into the whole subject of suffering. I keep saying around here, biblical theology of suffering, biblical theology of suffering. You get a good theology of suffering, remember? It's like in the wintertime having a coat you can put on. It's not that it's not cold, that it hurts, it's bitter. But oh, to have a coat, a good cloak of theology, oh, what it will do for you. Always in relationship with God, not just a theology, but the two together. So we'll look at, I can now accept suffering. The next year we'll come back, number three, assurance. Verses 28 through 30, I can now expect good from all things. That's the very noted verse. For God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let's figure out what that means. Then security, verses 31 through 39, I can now be certain of eternal life. Now let me say a word to seekers. Do you that are here trying to kind of put together faith and understanding of faith? How important is this whole subject matter to you? Here's why I think it's so important. Don't we all search for what we believe that will give us the best life possible? I, I've never met anybody who's pursuing a, a relationship, uh, trying to find a life partner, and they, they meet somebody, and, and I say, and what causes you to want to marry this person? And they say, oh, I just want to be as miserable as possible. <laughs> I think this person will make me very unhappy. <laughs> Nobody's doing that. They're saying, oh, because I think this is the person that's going to make my life the best. If you look for a career, nobody says, give me a career where I... I'm really going to struggle in life and won't be able to make ends meet and won't enjoy what I do. No, we say, give me a career that will make my life as best as possible. And the list goes on and on. All of our life decisions, that's it right there. Now, here's my question, seeker. If these four claims are accurate that we just walked through, if they are accurate, I guarantee you, you can take your greatest challenge in life, your most bitter suffering, whatever it is you're going through, your greatest loss, whatever brings you the deepest pain, and you can take that and you can hold it up and then against that show those four life gifts, as I'll call them, that we just mentioned. 
and you're able to say, I am certain of these four. I have these as part of my life. I will guarantee you it will overshadow these so much that you'll understand what Paul says in the book of Romans itself where he says, hey, the suffering of this world is not worthy to be compared to the glories yet to be revealed. And these are the things that have been revealed. Can you imagine even beyond? So seeker, I'll tell you what, this is worth looking into. I'll guarantee you because when it all comes down, you want a better life? Let me tell you, this is how you get it. You follow God's path. Now, as we begin, we want to drill down into the first of these four. I can now experience divine acceptance. Now, what do we mean by acceptance? If you look up the word, it says the state of being accepted or acceptable. Okay, that helps a lot. Don't you, aren't you interested? I mean, I found no better definition than, uh, of the word uh, acceptance. So, all right, so let's look up the word acceptable. Here's what you find. Being found worthy, pleasing, satisfactory. Now, we're talking divine. That's God. Can you imagine the state of living life if you truly believe this with all of your heart in the deepest of conviction, you believe that God looks at you and says, you are worthy, you are pleasing, you are satisfactory to me, your God. Man, you wake up every day saying, I'm okay. I got what counts. I'm okay. What you're saying is, I'm accepted by God. I will never be condemned by God. In fact, I will always be loved by him regardless of what I do. Well, that needs to be understood a little bit better. So, how do we know? If one, if it is true that there are people that God looks at and says, you're lovable to me. I see you and you're acceptable to me. I look at you and, and you're satisfactory to me. How can you know he looks at us like that? Well, basically, if you look at our series, this particular series we're in, that we're going to be covering these next three weeks, you'll see three assurances. I'll put them up so you can kind of see where we're going. This week, the testimony of God's word, meaning that God says so. That's one way we know. It's a lot more than you realize, though, when we unpack that. Number two, the evidence of a changed life, verses 5 through 13. That's because our lives say so. And then the last verses, 14 through 17, the witness of God's Spirit, God's Spirit actually does something to convince us that it is true, that we're lovable to Him. So we're going to look at this first one, the testimony of God's Word, the first four verses. Now before I read the verses, I want to just say this before, let me tell you, okay, first step, yes, you've got to hear that somebody loves you. If we're talking about God, we want to hear that God loves us. A lot of people are going to church today and say, just tell me about God's love. I've gotten communication, numerous communication from people. Randy, don't tell us how sinful we are. Just tell us how much we're loved by God. Tell us how much we're loved by God. Well, that's pretty important. In a human relationship, how important is it that the person that you love says to you, I love you? Can you imagine? I love you. Thank you. No, you want to say, I love you, I love you too. But folks, that didn't go far enough. And I know your immediate thought is this, oh yeah, because you got to see it. No, no, no. 
There's something else critically important that we often, often, often forget, and that is this. No, we've got to believe that we're lovable. It doesn't matter. The experience has shown me this. The degree to which a person is loved is in no way related to how much they believe they're loved, meaning as much as we may be loved by somebody, it doesn't matter if we don't believe we're lovable. I tell the story of a, a dear friend who came to me decades ago in their relationship, in young marriage and so forth, and loves his wife to death, and, 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 and he would tell his wife, I love you. He would demonstrate. In fact, I'd, I always said then, I said, I think he does a better job demonstrating love to his wife than I do of my wife. But Carol just didn't seem to have any trouble believing that I love her. I mean, she just, you know, she kind of believes it. But this wife struggled to believe it. And when you begin to dig into it, you find out, oh, here's the reason, because I had a, a you know, a, a, a live lifetime of growing up and young age and so forth, and without the kind of, of established expressions of love in the family realm and so forth that one would want to have, maybe had experiences of life, you know, that were, you know, uh, and, you know, I'm sorry I did it, but I did, I lived this way and so forth. The next thing, you know, we look at ourselves, we all know our sin, and we go, I am just so unlovable. And then people express love, they say I love you, doesn't make a difference. Let me tell you, the same is true with God. We find ourselves saying, oh, please just tell me that God loves me. Tell me that God loves me. Well, we need to hear that. God's word says it over and over. He loves us. But folks, for a lot of us, it's not making a whole lot of difference because we feel so unlovable. And therefore we go, I can hear it, but it, 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 I just don't feel it. Therefore I don't experience it. I don't really experience I might be loved, but I, I just, I don't relate to that. So what we're going to see in our text is that which is going to be able to help us understand why God could look at us and see us so lovable. I'll tell you this. This is a theology of soteriology. You know, soteriology is a study of salvation. Please understand this. This, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, that is perfect for little children. But as we grow up, uh-uh, it's not going to cut it. You've got to go much deeper than that. And that's what Romans 8 does. For us. I'm going to invite you to live stream. You can go on our podcast, but I'm encourage you, get the series. Go through it. Work from beginning to end. If you have to be out of town, catch up on it. Follow through this series. Now, I'm going to teach this text thoroughly. Quickly, but thoroughly. Came up about 9, 9.30 last night from my basement where I study and and Carol was upstairs, and she asked me how it was coming or whatever, and I made the comment. I said, you know, I could teach this thoroughly, very, as far as I'm concerned, clearly. I, I think I can do that. But when I do it, about 75% of the people are going to go, what did he just say today? Was that good? I don't really know. I, I didn't quite get what he was saying. So about 25% of you are really going to like this. Now, I want to remember the 75 that are kind of not going to really catch it all. 
At the end, I'm going to simplify, simplify. And take the depth of it and say, just make sure you get this from it, okay? So let's, uh, let's get into it. Here are two. The text gives us uh, basically two explanations of why we are lovable. It begins in verse 1, because we are in Christ. Remember that. We are in Christ. Here's where you see it in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you say no condemnation, uh, that means the opposite is true. We are loved. Why are we loved? Well, we don't understand why Christ died for us. No, I get that. Like we sing, Lord, why? Why? Why would, you, why would you demonstrate your love to me? Why would you die for me? That's beyond our best comprehension. Nobody understands that. But then when we say, okay, but let's go and ask this question. Not why did you die for me, but now why do you love me now? There is an answer to that one. And it's summarized right here because we are in Christ. If you look at, skip down if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, but if not, look at the screens. But look at verses 8 and 9. Or 9 and 10, I'm sorry. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Before you change it, go back one more second. Notice the Spirit of God, then it says the Spirit of Christ. And now at verse 10, you can flip over, it says, if Christ is in you, those three, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, and Christ, these are used interchangeably. And still Christ in you, though the body is dead, mm, the body is dead because of sin, we're going to come back to that, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now you read that and you go, gosh, that's... I just jumble talk. I don't, I don't, I don't really kind of get that stuff. What exactly are you talking about? Here it is. When we talk about being in Christ, it's the same as saying, as we read in the last few verses, Christ in us. It's Colossians 3, verse 3, where it says we are hidden in Christ. If you were here years ago when we were in chapter 6, you may remember that I used my fist as illustration, that here we are, this is you and this is me. And this is our nature of sin. And when we are conceived and born into this world, this is how we are. We are bound in that sin nature. However, something happens at salvation. We die to sin. Die, separate. What separates? You and me, we separate. When we come to faith in Christ, we die to sin and we separate. The old nature separates from who we are right here. Still a part of, in our body, still a part of us, but, but it's now this way. Here we were a slave to sin. Here we've been freed from sin. But at the very time that this happens, I need a third arm, and I do not have it. Pretend this stays here. This happens. This is the Spirit of God. Boom. And I become one with him. I'm united with him. That's, that's what happens. Now it's a whole new deal. I'm freed from my sin nature. I'm now bound to Christ. Well, that is what in, throughout the history of the church, as long as theology has existed pretty much, this term has been around, the mystical union. 
So I'm meeting with guys each week, like this week, I've probably met with three, two, three different guys that I'm kind of helping them understand the faith. And we were talking with one of them today, this week, and I'm sitting out, this is where, this is where you are united with Jesus. You, you're kind of, you know, and, and, and you can see here's somebody raw to understanding Christianity. And they go, say that again. Like, what do you mean? Well, Christ is in you. He's in me? Well, what do you mean he's in? Yeah, well, it's, you're in him and he's in you and, you know, you're kind of hidden in him. And he looks at me like I'm crazy. What are you talking about? I said, you know what? We'll never really get it. It's called a mystical union. But there's a way to know that there is a mystical union and we're going to get to that as we go through the series. But here's what the scripture tells you. Yeah, you have been united together. When he sees us like this, God sees us and he sees Jesus. He sees us and he loves us like he loves Jesus. Why does God see us so lovable? Because he sees his son Jesus. And we're hidden in him, Colossians 3, 3. He doesn't see us. He sees him. And he looks at us and he says, oh, how lovable, how lovable. I had a, uh, a best friend, junior high and high school. Uh, we were like inseparable, did everything together, just, just deep buddies. And uh, he went on to be maybe the greatest athlete in the country. I'm talking the number one blue chipper, I mean, he would be the number one five-star in basketball, football. I mean, he was just absolutely great. And now I was his closest friend. That was kind of nice. I think people even liked me because I was his friend. I don't know. But I mean, I was in good shape because I was his friend. I got to go places. I got to do things. I got to experience stuff I would have never experienced were I not his friend. Well, folks, that is a terrible illustration of what I'm trying to say because, oh yeah, I'm alongside, I'm going with him, I'm, I'm nearby, yeah, I'm getting some benefits. Folks, we're talking about united with Jesus. We're one with him as if, oh no, you see me? You see me as the greatest athlete in the country, but I'm not the greatest athlete. Well, I was number four, but anyway, that's not true. <laughs> I, it was like, oh no, no, I'm nowhere close I could be seen as the best athlete? No, because I wasn't hidden in him. I was just kind of along with him. How many people think of their Christian faith? Well, I'm kind of close to Jesus. I'm kind of close to Jesus. I try to get close to Jesus. That's not, that's not good enough. We've got to be hidden in him. And that's what happens when a person becomes a real follower. They are literally united together. Here's the problem, though. We've got to move to the second and final point, and that is this. You and I still know we got issues, sin problems. I mean, how many, how many of us here don't lust ever for anything, anyone? Oh, of course. How many here are not selfish? Well, I'm selfish. You are too. And the list goes on and on and on. Some of us get into what we call the, 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 the darker side of our sin. Well, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, we all know I got a problem. And so it's hard for me to believe God knows all things. He knows that I am sinning. Yes, he does. I may be hidden in Christ, but it's not that he doesn't know what I do. So he sees what I do, and, and, and he still sees me as lovable. Now that's going to be hard. 
Hard to buy that one right there. So we come to the second point, which is this. Because we have been freed from the power of sin and death. So it's not just we're in him, but something else has happened. We've been freed from the power of sin, the nature of sin, and death that goes with that. We have been separated in that regard. So verse 2 reads like this. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now that's confusing because of the word law. It should, it literally means power. So let's read it again. For the power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the power of sin and death. Keep in mind, even in this same text, you're going to see capital L, law. That's referring to the standard of God's law, the Ten Commandments, etc. So what our text is simply saying is the liberating power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, has set us free from the enslaving power of sin and death. Now, if you want to kind of get that, you've got to go to Romans 7. You've got to back up a little bit. In, in Romans chapter 7, you may remember the, the text, some of you that are Bible readers, you would know. The, the text is Paul, the Apostle Paul, and he says, hey, the good that I'm trying to do, it doesn't seem I can do. The, the bad things I don't want to do, it seems like I keep slipping up, and those are the things that I do. And we all relate to that. And a lot of theologians, they say, well, what do you do with that? I mean, he's, he's a bad boy. He's not, he's not doing right. Oh, he must be looking back, and he's just talking about before he became a Christian. That is not true. It's present tense. You can't do that. He's describing life now. Wow. Life now? Yeah. But then he says in verses 21 through 23, he says, I find then the principle that evil is still present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the power, law, power of God in the inner man, but I see a different power in the members of my body, waging war against the power of my mind and making me a prisoner of the power of sin which is in my members. By the way, I changed the word law for power so you can see how it really reads. So what, he is, what he's saying is this. Here's the beauty of this, folks. I'm going to make it simple here. This is the simple, all right? What he's saying is this. Before Christ, before being in Christ, sin is you and is me. After Christ... Sin is in you, and sin is in me. From that moment on, their sin is separated. Still have that old nature in me, but it is no longer me. And the beauty of that is now, God's judgment goes against the sin, and because we're separated, we don't experience the judgment. He sees us as lovable. He looks at our sin and he sees it as deplorable. And he's going to judge that mess. He's going to get rid of it. It's, but not us. But were we like this with our nature of sin? We're one. It's all the same. Here's the danger. I don't want you to hear that as some Christians have done. And they let, let the pendulum swing real far. And they say, oh good, sin's not the issue anymore. Let's not worry about sin. We don't need to talk about our sin. 
Oh, that's not true. That's the desire of many in the Christian faith today. Listen to John Stott. Is there any greater than this man? And great commentator, commentator of Scripture. He says, an honest and humble acknowledgement of the hopeless evil of our flesh, even after the new birth, is the first step to holiness. The only way to arrive at faith in the power of the Holy Spirit is along the road of self-despair. So, keep in mind, before we're in Christ, we cannot keep the law. After we're in Christ, we cannot keep the law in and of ourselves, but we now have a new power to be able to. Uh, many of you remember in the Romans 6 uh, series, uh, I used the illustration of the push-ups. The man that I've gone to, I uh, so admired his Christian faith and how he lived such a holy, godly life. And I said, 20 years older than me, I said, how do you do it? How do you do it? He said, do you do push-ups? I said, yeah. He said, how many is your max? And I gave him my max. And he says, I assume you did your max and it was your max. Then your last push-up, you remember this? Your last push-up, you'd be shaking and just pushing and trying this. If you can make it, it's your last one after all. And you finally get it. And you're so proud. Got it. What if, he tells me, what if I had the ability, and I would do what I say, and I reached down to you and I said, Randy, if you can do one more push-up, I'll give you a million dollars. He asked me, he said, do you think you could do it? I said, probably adrenaline may come in, yeah. He said, you'd certainly try, wouldn't you? I said, yeah. So I, he says, I assume you do. And so you get down there and you start shaking and, oh, uh, and finally you get it and you break it. You're so excited about that million, and I reach down and I say, by the way, five million if you can do one more. <laughs> he said, do you think you tried? I said, well, sure. He said, do you think you could do it? He looked at me, he said, let me tell you, you couldn't do it. No, the minute you bent your arms, boom, you'd go down on your chest. You'd probably look up at me and you'd say, I can't. And he looked at me and he said, Randy, when you get to that place in your belief of your ability to overcome your sin, that's when you become a holy man. Mm. It's willpower for us. I'll do it. As opposed to his power. Very important not to go overboard on that. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 that gives us kind of the, the, the bigger understanding of how this is going to take place. Verse 3 says, for what the law could not do, and this is the capital L, what the standard could not do, weak as it was because of the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What the law could not do. Did you know this? Did you know the law is perfect? God's word says that of itself, of the law. It's perfect. But that does not mean that it does not have limitations. Think about it this way. Is Jesus perfect? Sure. Does Jesus have limitations? He sure does. He can't sin. There are limitations. And he's saying here, hey, there's limitations to the law. The law can't save. It can't save you. The law was never meant to. The law cannot sanctify, make you stronger in the faith. That's not what the law is designed to do. It's not going to do that. So what the law could not do, he said he did it through his son. And it says, well, how does he do that? As an offering for sin. He bears our sin and he condemns our sin. Not us. He condemns the sin. And he has to pay for it. If that sin were not paid for, we could not be lovable. It would still have to be given to our account. And so that's not going to work. 
Look at verse 4. Verse 4 is going to tell us why he would do this. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And look at that word fulfilled. Very important word there. It means perfectly performed in us. Do you understand this? So now here's the, here's the, here's the simple now. Here's the real simple. Oh, Jesus takes our sin. He dies. We separate from our sin because of his death. And his death pays for our sin. But also, what about our need for perfection? We're not, we're not living life to perfection. Oh, Jesus took care of that too. That, what do you mean? Oh, he lived perfectly. And so, in him, he's died for your sin. He's lived perfectly without sin. So, he looks at you and me, and he says, oh my, you're lovable to me. You're as lovable as you can imagine. Now, let me conclude. What's our response to all this? So what does that mean? Well, first of all, I think it means that we're going to, we're, we're not going to find ourselves saying, well, okay, this is great. Now I can just live any way I want. I'm in Jesus. I'm forgiven. I can live. It, it won't happen. It won't happen. I've been asked me, so can I do anything I want to do now and get away with it? I say, well, I don't think that's going to happen. Why? Because if you're really in Christ, you're not going to want to do that. In fact, you tell me this, somebody that you love, who loves you to death, would you say, I know they'll forgive me for whatever I do, therefore I'm free to do anything I want to do? No, you'd say, I'll fight because I love that person. Let me tell you, when you come into Christ, you may hurt him over and over and over in what you do in your disobedience. But let me tell you this, you hate it when you do it. Because this is the one that loves you. This is the one that's forgiven you, who's died for you. It doesn't work that way. Other questions often asked, will, will God ever be angry with me? I know that's a divided answer by people that would hold the same theology that I hold. I'll tell you what I believe. I believe God definitely gets angry with us. Absolutely, I believe he gets angry. But he's angry with us because of his love for us. His anger never condemns us. His anger is never for punishment. His anger is like you or me if a parent and we see our children doing something wrong. It's not because that just makes me mad, but oh, I don't want that for you and I've got to express to you just how awful that is that what you did. No, no, no. That's good. I have no problem with that. But don't believe that he condemns you because of it because you're not. You'll never be condemned. And then the big question I think comes, well, does the law matter then? Yeah. It's God's standard to say, you love me? This is how you express your love to me. These are my ways. Live by them. And we go, thank you. I need that law. And we become like David. Oh, I love the law. It's my meditation day and night. Oh, it tells me what, what your pleasure is. It tells me who you are and how to become more like you. Oh, God, thank you for that law. And so don't be one of these, uh, get away from the law. We don't need the law. No, we want the law. Not as a means in order for God to love us, but we want to keep it because 
of God's great love for us. So, seeker, it's not how you live that makes you right with him. It's how he lived that makes you right with him. It's now no longer I've decided to follow Jesus. It's more than that. It's now it's I am in Jesus. That's putting it very simple. You're in Jesus. If you remember that much, he's in you, but you're in him, hidden in him. And so God looks at you, he looks at me, and he says, oh, how lovable. Is that what you want, seeker? Go to the cross. See what Jesus did on Calvary. And understand he had to pay for sin. And once he's paid for your sin, man, then you are able to say, I'm in him. And he sees me as lovable. How about Christian? Christian, know this, God will never, ever let you go. In fact, he was gotten for you. That's the important news. He has been gotten for you. You will never be condemned, ever, never by God. You will always be accepted by God. You will always, in his sight, be lovable, lovable, lovable. Now you tell me, does it get any better than that? Mm -mm. You take that great truth, you add it to these others, even if there weren't the others, if there were just this one, and you could say, I am loved by my God. I'm accepted by him. And I know why, because I'm lovable. And you actually buy into what he says here. Mm. Now you're able to say, oh, how my God loves me. So take your worst problem. Put it up next to it. And you'll say, not even be compared to the glory I've received in his love. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you that you would grant us to take this text and to apply it, just what we've learned, what little bit we understood. We've got enough that we can leave here knowing that we're in you and we're lovable. And I pray, therefore, that when we see now, you say that you love us in your word that it won't just be a theory that we would wish so, hope so, but it would be that we now know so, even because we are lovable only because of what you did. Grant that, we pray, and we ask it in the matchless name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.